Hello and welcome to another episode of the Raw Podcast. This one is so fascinating. At the end of the 1979 season, the Richmond Football Club poached a sports psychologist from Carlton, and his name was Rudy Webster. He came to Richmond to try and mould them into something great. And as you know, 1980 was Richmond's perfect season. So I've managed to contact Rudy Webster over in the West Indies, and here is his fascinating insights into sports psychology, into his time at the Richmond Football Club, and being the cause of the Tony Jewell Percy Jones fight in the qualifying final of 1980. Rudy Webster, it's lovely to speak to you. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Can I ask, when you were at the Richmond Football Club, what was your what was your job title there? What was your role? <laughs> Well, I, I suppose you could say mental skills coach, um, but the players called me the witch doctor. So, <laughs> but really, it was to work on to help to help the players with the mental part of their game, um, particularly um, under pressure to get the team to play together as a unit. That was the main thing. Um, yeah. I was doing something similar with Carlton. Um, in 1979, uh, they won the Premiership. Uh, but during that season, Richmond wasn't doing too well. And the CEO, or the manager, asked me if I would come and speak to the to the players. So I went over there, I think it was a Wednesday or Thursday evening, and I spoke to them, and, and they weren't doing well at all. And the, the next match the following Saturday was I think it was against Essendon and uh, they went on to win by about what, 10 or 12 goals yeah. and then the Richmond club asked me if I would join them and try and help them in 1980 so I was I, I was um, I, 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 I was a little bit reluctant to leave Carlton yeah. because you know Carlton and Richmond weren't the greatest <laughs> of friends in those days <laughs> But I saw it as a tremendous challenge, and um, I accepted the offer. And um, I, I, I think the Carlton people were not very pleased about my departure from the club, but that's history. So, so I'm guessing it was, was it Tony Jewell who sort of invited you across? Uh, pardon, I didn't hear that. Sorry. Sorry, was it, was it Tony Jewell who invited you across? Yeah. Um, actually, I, it, no, the offer actually came from the, from the, from the manager or the CEO. I can't remember his name, but obviously oh, was he it, would have discussed it with, with Tony Jewell. Was it, it wasn't Richard Doggett, was it? No. Richard Doggett, that's right, yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. Now, I, I yeah. looked, I looked, I looked in the annual reports of the Richmond Football Club and it had you listed as a hypnotherapist. Is that, is that your title that you had? Not really, no. Um, because the moment you use the term hypnosis um, to players, you, they usually most of them usually shy away. Sure. But it was something. It was something that I used. It was a tool that I used in addition to lots of other um, approaches to to get the best out of the players. But um, I, I I would say a mental a mental skills coach, a coach of the players' um, mental preparation and mental abilities. So can you help me understand what, 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 what's an example of a session that you did with the players? 
Well, when I when I went there, looking at the overall team, yeah. Uh, when when I went there um, and I spoke to most of the players, I think I don't say, I think they finished tenth or somewhere down there um, in 1979. You can check on that. I'm not sure. When I asked the group how well they they thought they could do in 1980, where they think they would finish, most of them said at the, at the best in sixth position. Mm. So I realized then that they did not have a positive image of their ability or of themselves. So one of my number one priorities was to get them to start seeing themselves differently and to start believing that they were capable of doing a lot better than they were doing. Right. Um, that was number one, uh, working on this self-belief and self-confidence, because that is extremely important. The second thing was very, very important as well. Um, and that is mastering the fundamentals or the basics of the game. Um, as I was telling them in cricket, it's not the fours and sixes, the spectacular things that win the matches for you. It is the ones and twos that add up and uh, the occasional four or six. So mastery of the basics was probably the most one, the most important things that I um, tried to get over to them because almost in every contest, the team that executes the basics best usually wins the contest. Um, and that is the difference between the very great players, the very great teams and the others, mm. is that they do the basic things much better than the other teams. So that was that was the second thing. Mm. The, thir the, the third thing was um, to get them motivated and to believe that they could possibly end up in the, the four or the five. I don't remember how many it was at the time. Mm -hmm. And and then the last thing, um, and this is something that I found out with the West Indies cricket team a few years before, and this was the thing that um, transformed the West Indies team into probably one of the greatest sports teams ever. And that was self-discipline. Discipline, because in the end, how well a team does, or how well a performer does, it depends a little bit on his, a lot on his ability, but more so on his the level of his motivation and the depth of his self-discipline. So those were the the four pillars that I that I used. And as far as the discipline was concerned, I worked very um, hard on the back line because I thought that if the back line became a very disciplined unit. Um, that then the other the other areas would fall in line, and um, Francis Burke and Mickey Malthouse and uh, people like that they they did a fantastic job in that respect. And so those are the four five four things the four things that I that I that I concentrated on. And Tony Jewell was was a very good coach um, at the time because he allowed the players to have um, quite a bit of input of input in, 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 in the strategy of the team. And um, uh, most of the coaches at that time were very um, dictatorial and authoritarian. They just told the coaches, the players, what they had to do and mm. they were supposed to do it. But Tony, um, and to his credit, encouraged the players to give him feedback about how they could do things better. And, um, and I think that made a difference. But the moment that we started to win a few games, Right. Yep. Then the confidence changed, and the, and the players then started to believe. You know, we could possibly get into the five, mm. 
And if you get in there, who knows what could happen. And as time went by, um, that belief became stronger and stronger. Were all the players receptive of what you were doing, Rudy, or was there always some well, people who were a little bit unsure? <laughs> well, you know, any time you go into a team like that, remember this is 1980s, all right? Yeah. Um, there's usually a one-third of the team, this is just a, a rough, rough estimate, one-third of the players would be very keen on what you have to say to them. One-third of them would be very neutral, hmm. and the other third would be very resistant. After a while, what I found was the ones that were most resistant, when they saw the changes that were taking place, then they became the biggest supporters. So um, <laughs> it didn't take long um, for, for, for most of the people to come around and, and accept what I was trying to offer them. And in fact, uh, I remember Francis Burke saying to me, "You know, Rudy, you, you, you're not teaching you're not teaching me anything new, but what you're doing is clearing up my mind, and I'm seeing things more clearly, and I'm thinking more." Uh, uh, more clearly and more simply. And I said, Francis, if that is what I've done to you, that is the best thing that I could have offered you. Right. Uh, but I think in the end, most of the players fell in line, and most of them really looked forward to the sessions. Mm. And in fact, uh, in the grand final against Collingwood, mm-hmm. um, Tony, Tony Jewell, of course, did not give the usual pre-match address, which was <laughs> most unusual. Um, on the Saturday, he he, he he asked me to take the backline uh, players into a room and let them decide what they were going to do and stuff like that. Oh. And they had a very, very, uh, a very good meeting. And at the end of it, uh, when they came out, Tony asked me, you know, how did they get on? What, what do you, what, how do you think they will go? And I say, they're going to destroy Collingwood. Because the level of commitment and the, the level of discipline that they had um, there was no way that Collingwood could have beaten them, you know, not not on that particular day. So, so I think that was most unu- that was most unusual because not many coaches would have done that. No, did you do that with each of the lines, or did you just do that with the back line on that day? N- mainly the back line and the centre, right? Uh, because the, fo- the the forwards, you know, and they had to be more creative and innovative and stuff like that. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, but I found that once, uh, and this, this happened to the West Indies team when I was manager and working with them as well, once um, a, a group of the players uh, become committed to something like this and become more disciplined, then the rest of the team just catches on and, and then the, the thing goes through the whole team. You yeah. know, I think sometimes when we are trying to change teams and change teams' performances, Instead of focusing on three or four or five key issues, coaches and the experts tend to go 20, 30 things, you know, for the team to get right. It doesn't work like that because, you know, 80% of your success comes from 20% of the things that you do. And if you can identify that 20% and learn them well and execute them properly, chances of succeeding uh, uh, will be very, very high. But on the other hand, if you don't prioritize those five or six things, particularly under pressure, the players sometimes get overloaded with information from their coaches and they get confused about what they should or should not be doing. So keep mm. it simple. Um, 
keep the thing down to four or five key points and then let the player's talent come out. That 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 that, that yeah. was my method. And and Rudy, on 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 game day when the match was on, where were you located? Where were you sitting? Um, well, on on the the game day was was a very interesting day. Um, at one stage, we were not doing well in the first quarter. And I said to Tony, I said, look, you know, um, uh, th- this dressing room is chaotic before the players got on the field. We had all sorts of people coming in there, <laughs> going up to the players and yeah. wishing them good luck and patting them on the back. People who had, uh, I mean, no idea about the football. Yeah. Uh, even some of the politicians used to come in there. And I said to Tony, look, it is important that the players be left alone to think about what they have to do for about half an hour before they go out on the field. So, you know, we must keep all these other people out. Let them come in after the game. Um, and, and Tony instituted that thing and he chased out a few people one day, including um, the, uh, one of the key politicians in Melbourne. And um, he did it in, in, in a very aggressive manner. Yeah. But after that, the team uh, started to perform extremely well. In the in the first quarter, mm-hmm. um, and that was something we weren't doing very well. But you know, the players would come to me one on one if they had a problem, or if they wanted uh, some reinforcement, or if they were a little bit confused about anything. And you know, it was like a sounding board. For example, in a match against Geelong, one well, of the final games um, at halftime, it was a very very physical game. I remember Francis Burke coming up to me just before the team went back out on the field and he, he said to me, Rudy, would you tell Michael from Althouse and the others to point me in the right direction when I get back out on the field? <laughs> I think he got a few knocks on the head during the second quarter. Right. You know? Yeah. So it's, it's things like that. And of course, um, we won that game, but it was a very hard-fought hard game. If, I think if you check the scores, you would see it was a close encounter. So, so... Uh, in one of the, in the qualifying final at Waverley Park, there's a famous incident involving two coaches, um, Percy Jones and Tony Jewell, which centred around you. So where were you yeah. on that day? Were you on the bench, or did you would you walk out with the coach at quarter time and half time? How did that come about? Yeah, I I, I was on the bench. You would sit on the bench and, during uh, a game. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I walked out. I walked out with Tony um, at the end of the first quarter. And um, we had knocked the hell out of the physically and mentally out of Carlton. I think a couple of the guys got roughed up pretty badly. Yeah. A couple of the Carlton guys. Yeah. And um, uh, we were in a huddle, and Percy Jones walked out and was going to the Carlton huddle, and he looked over and saw me smiling and talking to the players. Now, Percy was one of the best friends, and we'd done a lot of wonderful things together at Carlton, and... You know, he's one of the ones that never forgave me for leaving. So when he saw me in the Richmond huddle, he just lost it. And he started to come straight towards the huddle, using some very colorful language. Oh, right. Uh, calling me a turncoat and stuff like that, and a traitor. And it got, as he got closer, it got more colorful. And Tony Joe heard him. And at first, he, he, like, he didn't know what was happening, but then, Tony's eyes started to roll, and I said, oh, my God, no, this isn't going to happen. And then, of course, they threw a few punches, but I don't think um, any of them connected. 
and um, then the thing the thing was broken up, um, and and um, we went on to win the match. The, the Carlton fellas never recovered from that. Yeah. But what we did, um, what we said to the guys, the more, if you get into a fight or anything like that, the moment the fight is over, you will focus all of your concentration on the, on the basics, which is attacking the ball, attacking the ball. So our guys knew exactly what to do after that. And, and we, we just uh, we just knocked this stuff into out of Carlton then. But the, the, the funny thing is uh, the press got hold of this and they've started to try to play it up as a oasis incident, you know. And I said, well, first is my best friend, you know. <laughs> There's nothing in that. And But, you know, what the press is like. Yeah. And then we went on to the Channel 7. And Tony Joel asked me to come down to the TV station with him. And I think Lou Richards was interviewing he, uh, himself and um, Tony and the and, and Perth. Yeah. And he was asking them, what happened, what happened, what happened? And, of course, they couldn't give any answers. Uh, and, and then, of course, this racist thing was still being attached to the incident. And then Lou called me onto the uh, set and said, Rudy, you know, we have, we, I'm not getting any sense of these coaches. Can you tell me what happened on the field? So I said... Uh, Lou, I really don't know, but this is the first time I've had two white men fighting over me. <laughs> I, I think I think that that humor more or less got rid of the racist uh, uh, interpretation of the incident. And even the politicians wanted to have uh, to get involved and to have an inquiry. But that was that was quite a. Uh, 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 I, 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 I've got a beautiful picture here that I keep in my room. Yeah. Of Tony and and thing exchanging punches um, with Percy Jones' signature at the bottom, all over you, Rudy. So <laughs> that, that that is that is fine. And in the in the in the 1980 final series, um, my father Kevin p- played some wonderful games. Did did you have much to do with him individually at your time at Richmond? No. Not really, because Kevin was an amazing champion, okay? Mm. And he knew he knew exactly what his game was like. Um, he, he was very different from the other people. And one of the things in, 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 in this business of mental preparation and mental condition or what, you have to know when to interfere and when not to interfere and who to try to help and who not to try to help. Um, right. Kevin... Kevin was was an incredible um, sportsman, um, and and you know once he got on that field, and and things started to go his way, you know there was no way of stopping him. Um, but but he had a fantastic um, mind on him too, the mind of a champion, yeah. um, because he he couldn't have done the things that he did over the years without. Um, Mentally being very, very, very strong. He knew he was, he was going to be targeted by, by the opposition. Most of them tried to hit him to knock him out. But he was so nimble and, and, and such a great player that he always evaded those attempts by, by opposition players. He, he was fantastic. He was a true champion. Did you manage to, to, uh, know much about Graham Richmond at your time there at Richmond? Yes, Graham was quite a character and, and um, a very strong, a very strong administrator who who was uh, who had a single focus, and that was Richmond comes first, second, and third. You know, and and um, in some ways he was a very good, good psychologist too, 
because I've seen him, I saw him sometimes when, when the team won. Um, you know, sometimes when the team wins, some of the players uh, let down their guard just a little bit and become a little bit confident or overconfident. Mm. But Graham used to remind them, you know, um, and say, look, next game you're going to play, if you don't watch it, you're going to play awful football and stuff like that. So he was always showing them the other side of the coin, particularly when they did extremely well. And that sort of brought them back down to earth a bit, you know? Yeah. Um, so he, he was very good in that, but he was very strong, a very strong man. And he, I think he had the respect of almost all the players. And I think a lot of them had a little bit of fear too, okay? <laughs> Which is not a bad thing mm. um, to have when you have a strong boss. But but he was an amazing, he was an amazing character. I, I don't know if anybody has written um, any books on, on him and his days at Richmond, but he certainly deserved um, somebody doing some research yeah. and writing something about him. I know in my in my time of, of speaking to many Richmond identities, uh, his name has been up the up the front there as just a tenacity, really, just a, a tiger in a tiger in himself. <laughs> yes. To, to make Richmond successful. He, he, he was a fighter. Yeah. And 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 you know he never accepted second best. No. And um, and I think if you were committed to the club, he was totally committed to you. And I think that is that is, that that created a lot of respect between between him and the players. Just a couple of quick questions before I let you go. Thanks for your time. Um, do did you do did you do any hypnosis with the players? Yes, um, yeah. As I said, that was one of the tools that I used. Um, um, well, I used to call it relaxation therapy. Right. And it is a very, very powerful tool because it allows you to... I mean, more, let me put it this way. Um, the greatest enemy that athletes have is not the one out on the field. It is the one inside their head. And what uh, hypnosis and relaxation allowed us to do was to quieten the noise that was coming, the, the self-doubt and the lack of confidence and the negative thinking, and all those things that sabotage performance. What the hypnosis or the relaxation therapy did was to suppress all of those things or eliminate them mm-hmm. for a period so that um, so that the athlete could, could think in a better way, be more positive, uh, be more certain of what he wanted to achieve, and, and to visualize and see uh, what exactly what he wanted to do. So that is what that what that did, um, you know. And uh, um, being successful isn't just about learning new methods or new techniques or new skills. It is sometimes getting rid of the negative things inside your head that stop you from expressing the potential or the talent that you have, like the self doubts and the lack of confidence and yeah. the negative thing. And that is what the hypnosis or the relaxation therapy did for those guys. And did you do that, was that an individual thing, or did you do that as a group? Um, as an individual. Right. Because oh. every person every person is different. Right, you know? okay. And, um, you know, I, I, I used to sit down with the guys individually and, and go through things with them, what was worrying them, and um, what they thought was the solution to their problem. Yeah. I used to try to get them to diagnose what their problem was 
and to try and formulate their own solution, right? Right. And so that they would take ownership of, of the solution. And then when they came up with a clear solution, we discussed it. And then I, using this visualization or hypnosis or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. we would um, help them to, to put those ideas into their mind. Oh, it, it is like programming a computer, all right? <laughs> it's like, uh, like programming the brain to do the things that they wanted to do. But once, once they found their own solution, you know, then they became more committed to it. The coach didn't have to tell them to do X or Y. They knew what they had to do and they did it. Rudy, when, it, when we got to the grand final and, and they were programmed, let's say, you know, and they were unstoppable, um, did you join in the celebrations at the end? Have you got a photo with the Premiership Cup or anything like that? No, funnily enough, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, actually, what, uh, what happened, um, I went back home that night. I was so tired, I just slept. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, joined, I joined the team. I joined the team um, for the Sunday and, and Monday celebrations. And um, just two quick things. Um, uh, Tony and, and Graham Richmond selected, I think it was Welsh, Walsh, I can't remember his name. Yes, um, yeah. To play on the wing. And he was not even in the second team, eh? And Tony said, look, we're putting this fella in there to do a specific job. And, you know, I want you to help him. He came to see me, and um, and I asked him what he would like to do and how he thought he would he could beat this guy. And he was a very physical player, by the way. Hmm. And he, he said, look, this is what I want to do, and this is how we did it. So I helped him to more or less reinforce those ideas. And I think if you look at the grand final again, I don't know if it's in the first quarter, he was playing on the wing and he tackled the Collingwood player by the by the hair. And the Richmond players, if you see any of the older guys, they will tell you, right? your father will tell you, yeah. that when he let go of the player's um, hair, some of the hair came out, a tuft of hair came out in his hand, all right? Yeah. And the chap's skull was bleeding. Yeah. The bloke never went close to um, to Walsh after that, and I think that that was that was that was a very important thing because this guy was a very dynamic player who who um, used to drive the Collingwood attacks, but he he was put out of the game um, very very early. The second thing, we were in Punt Road celebrating on, on the Monday, and we were in one of the pubs down there, and I was with the doctor the club and we saw Francis Burke you know and we noticed that his thumb his right thumb was hanging down rather limply so we said wait a minute there's something wrong with his thumb so we went over and examined his thumb and it was broken and it was broken in a very bad, bad place too right. and uh, the doctor said to Francis Francis your thumb is broken um, he said really he said didn't you have any pain he said well just a little niggle so the bloke said, well, when did this happen? He said, well, I think I got a knock on it in the first quarter of the grand final, um, but I didn't pay any attention to it. Um, so he played, I think he played the rest of the game with a broken thumb. Mm. And when you think that the thumb is half of the hand, you can imagine um, what a tough player he was. And even on the Monday, I don't know if the alcohol on the Sunday and the Monday that we were imbibing, lessen the pain or not but um, that that was Francis Burke an amazing 
amazing champion. Yeah. In a slightly different way from your dad, yeah. but he was fantastic as well. And, and finally, what I find interesting, Rudy, is when I contacted you a few weeks ago, um, you made reference to the passing of Billy Barrett um, and how you, you saw a photo of my father at the funeral. So, to me, you still keep in touch? You still keep across Richmond Football Club? Yes, I follow. I follow. I follow what is going on. Right. Um, I read the the Melbourne Herald and the Age. Right. And some, and I sometimes I watch the games um, on television because we get it over here now, even in in, in the Caribbean. Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, you know, and, and my my year at, at Richmond was a special year in my life. I mean, I I, I, I sometimes go on YouTube and replay that grand final in 1980. I mean, it was one of the most productive and the really? happiest years of my life, I mean, certainly in Australia. Do you use do you use the grand final as, what, as, as evidence when you're doing presentations or speeches? Sometimes. A, a little stories about, about the process, not so much about the result, yeah. about um, how... How, how how players get the best out of themselves and how some players don't get the best out of themselves under pressure. Yeah. Because I, I think I think what that, those Richmond fellows did in 1980, they handled the pressure much better than the Collingwood guys. Um, and I I remember after the grand final we were having a drink and one of them um, the umpire came up the, the referee umpire came up. Yep. And said, we were talking, he said, after the first 10 minutes of the game, we knew that Colin was, was going to lose. Because any time there was a ball there to be contested, yeah. the Collingwood player was always half a second too late. And um, and I think the pressure that was put on them, they didn't handle it very well. Yeah. They didn't handle it as well as they should have. And I think that is something that our guys... That all guys, and that's where the discipline and the motivation, the intent comes in. Those are those. Without those two, it doesn't matter how good you are, um, how how much ability you have. If you don't have discipline, if you don't have a high level of motivation, and if you don't have, if you don't commit yourself to mastering the fundamentals or the basics of the game, it doesn't matter how much talent you have. You will never get the best out of yourself or your team. Yeah. It's very insightful, Rudy. I, I thank you very much. And I know Richmond supporters um, uh, are very thankful for you as well, coming across to Richmond in 1980, because in a sense you you helped us win that premiership. And I think that you yeah. also... Um, I think there will be quite a few players who would look back and um, reference you as a, as a key person in their football journey in their football career and I hope that maybe they've said that to you at some points as well yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what I would like to say to all the Richmond supporters and the ex-players you know I, I, I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity I had to, to be involved with Richmond and as I said it was one of the most productive years um, of sport that I had and that, that includes my time with the West Indies you know, when we became champions of the world and dominated for so long. I think my time at Richmond means more to me than any of those other things that I did. Uh, so I want to thank Richmond Football Club 
And I want to thank, thank the Richmond supporters for all the support they gave while I was there. Because I took a lot of stick, as you can imagine, from Carlton, Carlton supporters for doing what I did. They've never forgiven me for going over to Richmond because Richmond, as far as they were concerned, was the, was the Satan of football. You know, there was no love lost between those two clubs. Um, so, you know. Hmm. And it's great. And please give my regards to your dad and to Kevin Sheedy if you if you bump into them and any of the old players that were in that team. Oh, absolutely. And and hopefully, um, could you come to Australia often still, Rudy, or not? No, I haven't been to Australia for for quite a while, you know. Um, oh. But um, if my health uh, keeps up, you know, I might I might surprise you and pop in there for a couple of weeks. And um, but you know. Um, uh, here's something that I'd like the Australian people to know. I mean, I've lived in all sorts of places, United States, Canada, all sorts of places. And for me, I think you've got the greatest country in the world, Australia, when you put everything together. I don't think sometimes the Australians appreciate what a wonderful country they have. Because mm. sometimes, you know, you don't, you don't see the great things that, uh, lie around you, things that are evident to everybody else except yourself. So, you know. Yeah. Um, That's lovely of you to I, say. I, yeah. I, 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 I think that, um, you know, the, the, the people there should become more appreciative of the wonderful country that they have. Yeah. Well, look, we're very appreciative of, of, of your time too, Rudy, so thank you so much for that, and I'll send your best okay. wishes to all as well. Thank you very much. Look after okay. yourself. Thank you for Bye-bye. that. Thanks, Rudy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, what a fascinating conversation with Rudy Webster. And it was lovely of him to take his time from the West Indies for a conversation. A reminder as well, you can hear 30 previous uh, podcast raw interviews with Richmond Identities on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com slash rawpodcast or just search for Raw Podcast in iTunes. And if you're listening in iTunes, if you can maybe give it a rating uh, out of five, we like five out of five, um, or leave a comment as well. Until we meet again, good thanks.